Hi everyone, I'm Michael Calori. I'm an editor here at Wired, and you are listening to The Gadget Lab, the podcast where we talk about the latest gadgets, apps, and services that you need to know about and how they impact our lives. I am joined by my co-hosts, Wired senior writer Ariel Pardes. Hello! And Wired senior writer Lauren Good. Hello! Our most loyal listeners might have just noticed that that intro sounded a little different, and that's because Ariel has just been promoted to senior writer here at Wired. Whoop, whoop. Yay! Reggae air horn. Congratulations. And her areas of coverage will be changing a little bit. And we're excited not only for her, but also because you're still going to be joining us on the podcast when you can, right? That's right. That's right. So tell us a little bit about your areas of coverage now and what kinds of bits of gossip and tips and juicy information people can send your way. I'm interested in all the gossip, tech-related or not. I'm very easy to find on Twitter and email. So if you want to gossip, I'm always here. But um, my new role will be focusing a little bit more on the weird intersections between different parts of our tech world. So I'll still be covering gadgets when I can, but I also had a story run in our business section today. I have a story running in our science section uh, in a couple days. So I'll be doing a little bit more cross-desk explorations. Hmm. Excellent. Well, that's all the news that we have time for. Yeah. So thank you for <laughs> all right. Listening. That was the news. That's the big news. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, actually, later on in the show, we're going to have an interview with Microsoft Chief Product Officer Panos Pane uh, that Lauren conducted uh, this past week. And you are not going to want to miss that. Lauren went up to Seattle to see the brand new Surface Neo and Surface Duo ahead of their big reveal. And, well, Microsoft is getting back into the phone business, even though they don't want you to call it a phone. We had a chance to ask Panos all kinds of questions, and you will hear Lauren deliver those questions with uh, pointed tongue later. But first, uh, there's some news to get through. Do you want to go first? That's right. I think I, you should, I encourage all of you to do a shot every time you hear me say the word phone, and every time you hear Pano say the word surface in response. Lauren, do you so, want people to die of drinking too much? <laughs> no, I, I mean, drink responsibly, but get your shot glass ready. <laughs> Okay, so you know that we can't let this podcast go by without updating you on Facebook a little bit. Earlier this week, The Verge published transcripts from two hours of leaked audio from Facebook meetings that occurred this past July. Now, the fact that the audio leaked was noteworthy in itself, since Facebook hosts regular employee meetings, um, and generally we don't hear anything about them. But what was more noteworthy were some of the things Mark Zuckerberg had to say about Facebook competitors, the threat of government regulation, and how his own personal conduct impacts the way people look at the company. So there wasn't any one big bombshell remark that stands out to me anyway from these meetings, and I did read through the transcript. But Zuckerberg did say that if Elizabeth Warren gets elected president in 2020, he anticipates a legal challenge because she, of course, has called for huge structural changes to the tech sector, uh, and he said he would fight that, basically. Zuckerberg also said that TikTok is doing well and indicated it's a Chinese company he's keeping a close eye on and talked about how Facebook has launched a competitive product called the lasso in Mexico to sort of test the waters in a market that doesn't have a big TikTok presence. Uh, he talked about people's perceptions of Facebook, including the press, and how people need to uh, people at Facebook need to win back trust. And he downplayed some of the reports about contractors who work as content moderators for the company, calling them over dramatic. So like I said, it wasn't really one thing I think that necessarily jumped out, but the summation of remarks that gave people a window into what Zuckerberg is thinking right now is Facebook finds its way through these murky waters. What did you guys think of this? I, I kind of wonder if you guys got the sense that he's downplaying some of the major existential threats to Facebook right now, or, or if maybe I'm 
overplaying the existential threats. Because as I see it, like it's not just Elizabeth Warren that's a threat in this antitrust stuff, right? Like there are multiple antitrust probes against Facebook that are already happening. So the idea that the company is a monopoly and might get broken up is a, is a very real threat as far as I can tell. Um, but there's also this public perception issue, right? Like people are not super keen on Facebook as a company. They're not super keen on Zuckerberg as a person. And that seems like an existential threat as well. And what I sort of found reading through this is that he seemed to kind of brush a lot of that away, like TikTok, whatever. It's big. We're keeping an eye on it. We're dealing with it. Elizabeth Warren, whatever. She might pose a legal threat, but we're going to fight it. Um, do you think that's a valid response? That was those were also his remarks to his employees, right? Fair, at a fair. So he's probably holding a little bit back. Right. At some level, you probably want to um, offer reassurances to your employees because you have to, you know, make sure they keep working and stay motivated mm -hmm. and are at least relatively happy about the place that they're working at and contributing most of their waking life to. So you have to, you know, sort of uh, mollify people, if yeah. you will, mm -hmm. in your employee workforce in order to make them feel better about what they're, you know, they're working for you uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. But I agree with you in the sense that the way that he especially talked about um, the press, he basically said, we got away with a lot the first 10 years of our existence. And then sometime around 2016, you know, which was a big election year, uh, people started to pay more attention to these issues. It, once again, it comes back to this is the way we're being perceived. Mm -hmm. This is the, People are paying attention. People are looking at, people are criticizing and scrutinizing rather than, oh, and finally all of the things we were doing several years earlier uh, that were questionable are now coming to light. Uh, so yeah, I don't know. Facebook has a Facebook has perception problems and Facebook has real problems. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, speaking of Facebook, which is definitely not a monopoly, despite the fact that it owns Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, Messenger, and now a brand new messaging app <laughs> has a brand new messaging app. It's called Threads. Uh, this is something that's been launched as a spinoff of Instagram. So it's a standalone app, but it works as a complement to your Instagram experience. You have to download threads separately, but then you log in with your Instagram credentials. Um, and it's basically meant to extend the experience of your close friends list. So that's a feature that launched last year on Instagram. It lets you pick a couple people who get to see privileged content on your Instagram stories. Um, and threads is meant to be just for those people. So your close friends list are the only people who show up in threads. Now the app kind of works like Snapchat. I hate to make that comparison, but it's the easiest way to explain it. Um, it opens to the camera and then there's an inbox where you can chat with your friends. But because it's only for your close friends, you can basically customize the experience so you're only getting notifications from the people you really care about. And then you can check their messages and look at their photos without having to wade into the vortex of the main Instagram app. Um, to me, it seems kind of absurd for Facebook to launch yet another messaging app, especially one that is sort of like an extension of the Instagram DM experience. But at the same time, I'm kind of secretly into it. Um, I love the idea that you can have a space that's just for the people you've decided you want to be bothered by and turn off notifications for absolutely everything else. Only look, check your Instagram feed when you're ready to like waste an hour scrolling through people's photos um, and really prioritize those connections that are meaningful to you. And, and that's what Instagram's product team said when I interviewed them about this. They said, like, what would it look like to have a messaging experience that was just for the people you cared about and no one else could infiltrate that? And I thought that was kind of nice 
But what do you guys think? Do you do you use the close friends feature? Uh, I don't, but I notice a lot of people do, and I think that Threads launching is sort of evidence that a lot of people are using close friends. And it's also evidence that a lot of people are using Instagram as their primary method of communicating with people or maybe their secondary or tertiary method of communicating with people, which is still a big deal because you have 800 ways to send somebody a note, right? Mm -hmm. So like, you know, I'm still at that phase in my life uh, as in like, you know, middle age where when I open Instagram, I'm sort of surprised to see that I have a message that's come in and I'm like, ooh, who got in touch with me? You know, it's a novelty to me, but I'm sure to a lot of people, it's, you know, just everyday life because they're they're just on it all the time. So for me, if I just want to see my messages, it makes sense to have something like threads because if I open Instagram, I'm going to get lost in the feed or in stories more likely. I spend so much time in stories. I actually just set a timer on my phone that only allows me to use Instagram for one hour a day. Mm-hmm. I set this timer on Sunday. Today is Thursday. I've hit that timer every single day. Ugh. I've run Wow. I've spent exactly one hour on Instagram every day this week, and it doesn't feel like I'm spending enough time in it. What time of the day do you usually watch your stories? First thing in the morning and at the very end of the day when I'm laying down in bed. Huh. Yeah. On weekends, I'll make myself breakfast, and then I'll open stories, and I'll just like prop my phone up, and I'll eat as I watch stories on my phone. Do you ever use IGTV? Uh, Only for music stuff, like if a band posts a new video or something. Is anybody using IGTV? Do we know mm, this? I don't think yeah, so. Okay. I post I post videos to, to IGTV. Yeah. Oh, you do? Yeah. Okay. How oh, interesting. Yeah, this is all about Facebook trying to get into every corner of your life possible. Mm-hmm. And it's also probably a part of its grand plan to unify its messaging systems at some point, at least on the back end. So to Ariel's point, like you don't have to have Instagram. You just have to have an Instagram login mm-hmm. or credentials of some sort. And same with Instagram, right? I don't think you have to have an Instagram login. You can use Facebook, if that's correct. Maybe. I don't know. It just seems like they're they're, you know, they're trying to be everywhere. And at some point, you're just going to use one sort of federated ID. That's like your Facebook federated ID that works across all of these things. And messages are going to just be flying everywhere. But but Facebook's going to be powering all of them. Not if Elizabeth Warren has. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. I'm also curious to see if uh, close friends hops around from app to app, you know, like if it shows up in WhatsApp eventually. Hmm. Would we be your close friends? Yeah, of course. You're the only people in that group. Good. (laughs) Uh, Okay, well, I have some not quite self-driving car news to tell you about. (laughs) Tesla pushed out a software update last week that gives the owner of a Tesla the ability to summon their car automatically. So how it works is if you're in a parking lot or the other end of your crazy long driveway, instead of walking to your car, you just pull out your phone, open the Tesla app, and then tap a button that says, come to me. The car then hopefully drives itself to where you're standing. So as you can imagine, Tesla published a number of caveats along with this update, as in you should only use the new feature, it's called Smart Summon, on private property, so a private parking lot or your own driveway. And since it's in beta, you should keep your eyes on your car at all times just in case things go awry. Mm. Not surprisingly, Tesla owners uh, eager to show off their newly driverless cars are recording videos of Smart Summit in action and posting them to the internet. And of course, the most embarrassing of the videos are getting all the attention, but those videos are 
quite embarrassing. There have been a few close calls, a couple of actual fender benders, and at least one instance where the Tesla appears to be unable to distinguish between grass and pavement when the person summons it and drives right across the grass. It's very funny. Um, now, the idea behind Smart Summon is undoubtedly cool, right? Like you press a button and your car drives itself to you. But the quirks in the system illustrate that you should always be skeptical of any automaker, or the CEO of an automaker in this case, who claims that self-driving cars are almost here. The sensors are not ready, and more importantly, the humans who own the cars are still just too trusting of the technology. Has anyone been hit yet by their own Tesla when they're out of the car? I haven't seen that. Okay, thank goodness. Yeah. Because, I mean, that would be awful. Yeah. But that's what I think about. If you're standing a certain distance away and you're like, come to me, car, and the car <laughs> can't actually read things properly yet. Well, I mean, you know, is that a concern? Or maybe I'm just envisioning this happening differently than it is. Well, the sensors aren't quite sensitive enough. They can't see any more than maybe like a dozen or two dozen um, feet in front of them, uh, you know, for the for the fully self-driving thing. So they only go about five miles an hour. Like they go parking lot speed. They don't they're not zooming over to you. So even if it did hit you, it probably wouldn't hurt you. That is to say, unless you're disabled or you have an injury and you can't move out of the way or if a car hitting you at two or three miles an hour is going to knock you over. And I mean, it sounds like a toy for rich people, but really, I mean, it is. But it's also a very um, a very important step in the world of mobility and accessibility, right? Like you're making it easier for people who can't walk to their car to get into their car. Um, so in that sense, I'm not answering your question. But well, is that what it's actually for? It's supposed to be for those who have mo you know, mobility challenges? No, I mean, it's, it's, I think it's just like an un unintended bonus. Oh, interesting. <laughs> it's so that you don't have to walk to your car. Huh. That's what it's for. It's so you just press a button and your car drives to you. Because, like, that's cool, right? I mean, I guess it's that's the ultimate future, right? And yeah. some, like, they're all self-driving at some point, And not only are they self-driving once we're on the road, but they actually mm -hmm. just come to us. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's, that's how it's going to have to work, right? It's not like mm -hmm. a driver's going to roll up when you summon your self-driving car and then hop out. <laughs> and you're like, here you go. I took it this far. Uh, uh, old Betty sure. here will get you the rest of the way. <laughs> you know, I don't know. <laughs> Well, speaking of the future, the other big news this week is that Microsoft announced its new lineup of Surface products, and I think it's time we listen to Lauren's interview with Panos. Yeah, let's take a quick break, and then we'll come back with that. Earlier this week, Microsoft revealed a lineup of new Surface hardware, from a new Surface laptop to a Surface Pro 7 to totally wire-free Surface earbuds. But there were a couple of new products in particular that stood out, mainly because one of them signals Microsoft's move back into mobile. It's a dual-screened, pocketable device that runs on Android. But Microsoft Chief Product Officer Panos Panay insisted it wasn't a quote-unquote phone. And of course, I had to ask him about this and why Microsoft has decided now to get back into the game. We also talked about the Surface Pro X, a tablet that's running Windows 10, but is powered by a mobile chipset. So without any further buildup, here's Panos. Panos, thanks so much for joining us on the Gadget Lab today. Thanks for coming over to see us. It's a pretty exciting day. Actually, it's it's a, been a really interesting day here at Microsoft. And uh, we are taping this from a Microsoft conference room. So if the audio is a little bit different than what you're normally used to on the Gadget Lab, that is why. But hopefully you'll forgive because I think this is going to be a really interesting conversation. And I want to start off by 
Quoting you from almost exactly a year ago, the last time we met here on this campus. How do you have a quote from a year ago? You were showing me the surface go back then. Yeah. And I asked you towards the end of our conversation, which ran on the Gadget Lab, are you working on a phone? I don't know if I put it as bluntly as that, but we, we, we got there. And you said that your plans for the future, it doesn't include a surface phone, but it includes the way to think about what it is people want to accomplish and how will they accomplish it and what are those form factors. And the thing is, is I'm seeing something today that looks a lot like a phone. <laughs> I think what, what you're seeing is a surface. You are. It, and it looks and it, and it is exactly those things. I mean, this is about a product we built that can help people accomplish more, but actually more so than just accomplish, feel good about it. And so we look at new form factors all the time. We've been working on this one for some time. When you asked me that question, I remember my heart sinking a little bit, like how do I answer? And the truth is we don't, I don't look at it as a phone. I look at it as a surface. So I can justify the answer at some level, but at the same time, it's a pretty cool form factor. It's small, it's like a phone, uh, and it, it just extends the capabilities of everything you can do on your phone today, but you can just do so much more. So let's quickly go through what we're seeing today. There's first, there's the Surface Neo, and that is a dual screen device, but it's got a 13.1 inch diagonal when it's extended. Then we're looking at the Duo, which has an eight inch diagonal when it's extended. When it's closed, each individual screen has a it's a 5.6 inch display. Doing pretty good. Okay, doing pretty good so far. But and so it's not a foldable, which is a big word right now because like Samsung's done foldable displays. This is something. It's a dual screen phone. Yeah. Talk about why you decided to do that. I think it was just about how much can be accomplished in the in two screens coming together for people. And accomplished, again, take that into how much more creative you can be, how much more productive you can be, where you don't have to context switch out of a single screen. It's also the ability that there's a 360-degree hinge that allows these two screens to go back-to-back and then use it in a phone. Like, you, you can't imagine um, the benefits of being able to let this device, software and hardware together, adapt to you. And that's a big thing. There's limitations with foldables that you will not find here with our two screens coming together. And then ultimately the elegance of how thin it is and how light it is and how it fits in your pocket. And, you know, you put those two screens together and you put it up next to the phone you're holding towards me and they're at the same exact thickness for the most part. And you, so it's bringing those elements of beauty that are so important when you pull something out of your bag to feel good. And then it's extending you into being more creative and productive. And that's, I think that's the inspiration of Surface All Up. And when you look at the whole new Surface line, that's what drives us, productivity. Like how do we, how do we help people be everything they want to be when they're creating? How do we help them produce what they want to produce, create um, their dreams right off of that canvas that's an instrument that we call Surface? And just to be clear, it makes phone calls. Absolutely, it makes phone calls, phone. but I don't know how many people actually make phone calls anymore. That's one of my challenges. Like We look at the data, we're like, God, there's not a lot of phone calls happening <laughs> compared to text and video calls and everything else. But yeah, absolutely, it does make phone calls. Like, I can't, I have no speech for that. So this, I mean, this is a big deal. You used to be in the mobile phone business. Microsoft exited the mobile phone business. You know that people are going to see this and they're going to think, Microsoft's getting back into the phone business. You're working with Google on this, which we're going to get to. But let's talk about why now. Because to me, it seems like there are a couple big companies out there, Microsoft, Amazon comes to mind, where there's really, you make a lot of really good products, but the phone has been this this glaring omission, right? And But now we're at a point where the market's getting a little bit more mature and sales are slowing of the smartphone. So what made you think, all right, but we should still be, we should still be working on a phone. We should still be making that thing, that pocketable thing. I think we, 
it was pretty simple. They, w- there is an era of kind of mobile, of, well, we talk about internally anyway, this era of mobile creativity is happening. Like how much can you get done on your, the device that's in your pocket, your phone? And I think it's limited today. And we always looked at it and said, if we can bring surface productivity or surface creation to the smaller form factor, the one that would, would expand, kind of create or complete the symphony of devices that we have today, a different instrument that somebody might use, and we have huge fans in Surface. You know, we have a pretty large business that's growing. We have fans that ask a lot, hey, are you ever going to make a phone? And while we didn't look at it as a phone when we built it, we looked at it as a Surface, it felt like the right time because in the extension of this modern era, you're doing more and more. You're sharing more content right off that screen. And while people, we know they love our current product line, and we hope uh, we, we are going to have a, you know, a great holiday with the products that we're announcing today, but we also know that extending into the pocket makes a massive difference. But it was only relevant, truly only relevant, if we knew, and we do know, that you can be more productive and more creative on it. Otherwise, it's just a phone. That wasn't it. And that's why it's a Surface. And that's what we're going after. And, and we, this is bringing all of Microsoft together on one product again. But it's on the OS that's right for the product. And why is the Google Android OS right for the product? It's just, a, it, first off, it's, Android's an incredible OS. It's the largest OS in the world, fundamentally, when it comes to mobile devices. And, um, you know, the applications that you can get from Android, are that's just real. That's what people need, and that's what we're here for. Satya talks about people-centered design, the way we think about people, people first. As a matter of fact, all the technology that we build today, it should and must fade to the background. It shouldn't matter what the OS is. It shouldn't matter ultimately at all. What should matter is what you want to do. And so this is the right OS for what people want to do in this form factor. But it's also the best of Microsoft on it. I mean, it is. And so that's what we're doing. We're bringing Surface to that mobile form factor, and we're, we're partnering with Google to do it. Did you consider at any point reviving or rebuilding a Microsoft mobile operating system? No. Not at all? No. Why is that? Because at the end of the day, where the applications sit today, like the opportunity that um, people already have leaned into, that developers have already taken advantage of, is right there. And there, there's, a, there's a reality to that that I think is, uh, you know, to ignore that would be a bit silly. Like, it would be very silly. Did you consider at any point making a single screen device that would have been Google, but with great Microsoft software. I consider a lot of things. This team thinks about a lot of things. And like I told you last year, when it makes sense for the form factor to be different, to make people more productive, we might make it. I think uh, in the case of a single screen phone, no, we didn't think about it. But we will always think about new form factors. But ultimately, this was about dual screen with a 360 degree hinge with software that was going to adapt both on Neo and Duo that was going to make you more productive. I don't think, you know, that product exists. It's actually the antithesis of a single screen phone in many ways for me. Explain that a little bit more. Because ultimately you get to stay in context more. And with your phone, you're switching in con- switching out of context all the time. I know there's application layers and people are saying, no, you can do two things at the same. No, you don't. People don't. Like, no. At the end of the day, with the structured space that we're creating and then Windows on Neo, especially, like you're just watching this flow in between two applications or one extending, your mind, it's magical. I, I can't wait for people to use it because it really is magical. Your mind turns on. You're actually thinking less and getting more done 
which is a very powerful state. It's the state we, that I call, that we talk about is flow. It's like that time when you're not thinking and your best idea comes up. You're actually thinking, you're just not trying to. And this device puts you there. Both of them do. I want to get to some of the other products that you also unveiled this week. But um, quickly, I mean, you've been in the surface business now for seven years, has it been? And along the way, there've been some starts and stops and uh, no pun intended, start menu, but you know, Surface RT, you know, I'm never gonna let you live that one down. No, yeah. But you, but, but that was something year, that was, you know, I always bring it up, right? But it was running on a chip that had an ARM architecture and it was kind of this hybrid mobile device and it was experimenting with software and that sort of thing. And, and you were early to that. What kind of learnings do you take from something like that? What kind of learnings do you take from your overall experience with the Surface line and apply it to this? A ton in the sense that when we started that product, we didn't even have customer feedback. We were, we had this belief we were inventing um, a product, you know, you click in a keyboard and maybe you could be more productive on a tablet. And uh, we thought people were conflicted and believed and knew. And I think it turned out that way in some ways that what do I buy a laptop, a tablet? What's, and there was back then, seven years ago, there was a lot of momentum around what a tablet was. And we felt like it was limiting kind of like a, just a consumption device in many ways. And there wasn't much more you can do on it. And so we had the learnings of what did it mean to click in a keyboard and get it done? We also had the belief that the mobile architecture, if you will, an ARM architecture was pretty important back then. And in the sense that, you know, silicon diversity where our customers can choose what they want. I talk about symphony of devices. It includes like, what are the materials? What is the chipset? What is it that you think is most important to you? If you're really a tech forward person and pushing it, like, by the way, this product pro X is for you. Like this is an incredible product. We understood back then that it mattered. Differences matter, but we also didn't really understand enough about mobile architectures. Just not enough. Just being a mm-hmm. mobile chip wasn't enough to make a real PC out of it. And you know, the learnings of the software and the interaction model that came with it. And um, really, were people ready for that idea and what was coming? And if you take the growth mindset that Microsoft talks about, and and these are words that um, have deep meaning, our culture matters in the sense of how much can we learn? It's not just you learned, and it's not just that you failed. It's did you take the learnings and apply them? I think when you look at ProX today, you're looking at Yep, you're looking at an ARM-based architecture. Starts from a mobile chipset, but ultimately we transformed the part and made it a full PC architecture part. It's Pro X. We can kind of think of the chipset as like a hybrid, like a crossover chip. That wasn't. That's never existed mm-hmm. before. This mm-hmm. product has never. I mean, the GPU on the product, I think, pushes two teraflops. It's insane. I think I think you're talking about the Pro X, and what I was actually asking about was this whole idea that with the Neo and the Duo, yeah. you're, one is running on an Intel chip and one is running on a Qualcomm chip. So oh, you've got yeah. a mobile chip, and then yeah. you've got, and but you're not concerned that that is going to be confusing to people at all because they're accustomed to certain form factors yeah. running on certain. Okay, but now let's talk about the Pro X. So the Pro okay, X, that's I, okay. I you were me no, 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 that's great. So the Surface Pro X yeah. is part of this other lineup. These are things that are shipping this holiday season. Yeah. So you've got new Surface laptops including a 15-inch one. You've also got Surface Pro 7, uh, which is the tablet, the touchable that at this point folks are familiar yeah. with. Yeah. And now you've got this Pro X. Yeah. What is this? Pro X is uh, it's the evolution of the Pro line, but it is a, it's a bit cutting edge. It's for the, it really is for the technology enthusiast that wants the thinnest, kind of sexiest. And I know I'm not sure I'm supposed to use that word, but honestly it is. It, to me it's a, it's a sexy device. You pick it up. It's not wonky. It's not... It's perfectly balanced. It's super thin. You hold it. It's like you, if you're leaning forward in tech, it's incredible. 
And it is the evolution of the pro line, which is super important. It modernizes it and it brings this um, basically a mobile product in your hands in the sense of if you're a mobile professional, you want to move and you want a full PC with you at all times. That's what ProX was meant to do for you. But it also has this chip in it called the Microsoft SQ1 chip. I think I got that right. Yeah, is that right? Yeah, okay. Microsoft SQ1. What is this? Phenomenal chip. So we partnered with Qualcomm about, I don't, I don't know the time frames actually, two to three years ago we started building a chipset where we knew we wanted to build the product from the inside out in the sense of if we were going to push bleeding edge, if we were going to get to that 5.2 millimeters of thinness, but with the full two, um, if you will, teraflops of GPU and full CPU capability with full speed, we had to redesign, rethink the processor altogether. So we sat and we designed it together. We created it. We uh, There's an AI block basically on the device where you can offload um, basically machine learning or any AI work that wanted to be done. I think you saw some of that in the labs today. And then the fundamental GPU was exactly what we wanted to push for that allowed it to be passively cooled. It allowed the product to become as thin as it needed and wanted to be, but it also is probably, it, there's nothing like it in its class that has its performance in a PC architecture like this. How important is it to control the silicon in today's world of hardware? It's important to build the silicon and the device together for sure. And with all our partners right now, we're in very deep, like we partner with AMD we, in very deep, we have a new chipset that's in the laptop 15-inch. We partnered with Intel. We're building from the ground up. Uh, if you saw Surface Neo today, because this is the truth of the product, it from the inside out has to be fully custom and clear. And then you see Microsoft SQ1, which is the beginning of kind of us shipping a product with Qualcomm and putting in market, where now you're getting the full performance of a PC with the benefits of the mobile architecture in ARM. Pretty cool. What are you most excited about this year? It's not fair to ask this question, really, and I knew you would. I could feel it coming. I could feel it. Like in feelings. It's <laughs> a good wrap up question. Yeah, feeling's a big thing. I think it's totally unfair. It's like asking who your favorite child is, honestly. And I, and I have four kids, and, I've, and one time I said in a keynote which who my favorite was, and I'm still feeling the pain from it, just so you know. So, like, to this day, I, I can't even repeat what I said, but I was like, you all have a favorite. You know it, and this one's mine. And it was a joke, but holy cow, am I still feeling that pain. So I don't think I'm going to answer your question. I'll tell you this. The current Surface product line, as it stands collectively, it feels like this symphony of choice for our customers. I don't think there's a, there isn't a product that can't serve somebody to get to their most creative point. And I'm passionate about it. Like it's, it's got, the, it's full and it's, it's come such a long way from what you just asked seven years ago, like that question. Like, I know, I know. At some point I have to let the RT go. No, it's really all right. Do. You should ask it every single time because I love answering it every single time. But I'm pretty proud of the product line, but I'm most proud of the team. So if you said, what's your favorite thing? I think my favorite thing, if I were to step back out of product for a minute, is how much love the team puts into these products. And when I say team, this is Microsoft. I mean, really, across the board. Um, and I have my favorite teams too, but I won't tell you who they are. I mean, when you when you talk about these though as suites of products, I see what you're saying because you re, you really are starting to fill in all of the gaps. Yeah. But then I think about something like let's look at your competitor Apple, yeah. and and the way that um, their software works from mobile to laptop, right? So right now, if I were to buy one of the new Surface laptops, that's going to be running Windows 10, and then let's say I buy the super cool new Duo, which yeah. is a phone because that's my that's yeah. my mobile. Um, you know, how, how are those two operating systems actually going to work together? They, they, well, we're 
well, that's what we're building it, and this is our we have we have a good year head start. But the fundamental, the seamlessness of the your phone app that's out there right now is built focused on our product. Whereas Surface Pro X, Surface Laptop, Surface Book, Surface Pro, all of them are going to have a pure integration with Surface Duo, 100%. It'll feel seamless. We're pretty excited about that. That's a big reason why. Like a, we have customers that walk in the Microsoft Store all the time and say, "Well, you know, can I get a?" Can I get a product to put in my pocket? Some people say phone. And uh, yeah, we're pretty excited about that part. I look forward to trying it out. Thanks. Thank you so much for your time. It's a lot of fun. A lot of fun seeing you as always. Well, that was a great interview, Lauren. I have to know, uh, are you going to get a duo, the dual screen phone, not phone thing when it comes out? It depends on how much it costs. They weren't sharing any information about price. Um, And it depends on if it ships, frankly, because this is something they're targeting for the holiday season 2020, and a lot can happen between now and then. Mm -hmm. I personally feel bolstered by the fact that Microsoft is confident enough that the world is still going to exist in holiday 2020, so (laughs) enough that they're planning a product (laughs) to ship then. So uh, let's just go with that for now. Okay. Okay. Um, also right now it's time for recommendations. Yeah, let's uh, do it. Should we start with Ariel? Do you want to go first? I would love to. Um, I am recommending something near and dear to my heart, which you can all partake in if you'd like. It's called Stoic Week, and it's a <laughs> week-long investigation into modern stoicism. So this is something I discovered last year. It's um, basically an online conference, which means that it's it functions like a conference, but you don't have to actually go anywhere or pay any money. Um, and the idea is that it introduces people who are brand new to Stoicism, as well as people who may know a little bit already, to some of the basic tenets and exercises in living a modern Stoic lifestyle. And you may be thinking at this point, Stoicism sounds kind of boring or dull or unemotional. <laughs> sounds like it involves a lot of suffering. Uh, that is not what Stoicism is. Uh, it is in fact, much more closely related to modern cognitive behavioral therapy in the sense that it teaches you to retrain your mind to think about things in different ways and to focus on sort of the value of what you can control and what you already have. Um, I got a lot out of it last year. You don't have to actually do much, but there are like readings and exercises and a community of people online who are really cool and smart. Um, And if you wanna participate or it sounds interesting at all, it starts on Monday, October 7th. So you still have time. Um, I've been tweeting about it. I think my Twitter followers are a little sick of it, but um, <laughs> it's great. I just took the uh, the pre-conference life satisfaction survey today, and I was a little surprised at where some of my results ranked. So I'm hoping that in a week you will see a happier, less angry, unburdened Ariel in this room. Okay. I don't think of you as burdened now or angry for that matter. I didn't either. Surveys don't lie. This is where the surprise. Yeah. Well, my life satisfaction ranked high, but like so did my anger levels, which is weird to me. Anyway, stoicism. <gasps> it's all the rage. Fantastic. It's all the rage for me. Mike, what's yours? Um, I'm going to recommend a podcast. Uh, it is a music podcast. It's called The Open Ears Project. And it's a daily podcast uh, from WQXR in New York City, which is the big classical station in New York City. Uh, it is like eight or nine or ten minutes long each episode. Uh, and it's really interesting. They ask a person uh, to talk about a piece of classical music that has profoundly affected them and their lives. 
and they have not famous people. And then they occasionally they'll have a famous person. Like there's one with Ian McEwan, the British novelist. So there's one with Eddie Izzard, the, um, the comedian. And they will talk about the piece. Uh, they'll talk about the time they first encountered it. Maybe they encountered it when they were a child or when like a close friend died. Uh, and then they talk about the uh, what it does to them when they listen to it. And it's usually, because it's classical music, it's usually like, oh, it soothes me. It makes my muscles relax. But occasionally you find somebody who talks about um, they need to get out of like a creative funk and then they listen to something and then all of a sudden it invigorates them. Uh, we'll listen to some audio. Um, here's a clip of uh, Jackie Chang, who is the editor-in-chief of the WQXR website and the former editor-in-chief of The Wirecutter, um, talking about her experience listening to Bach's Violin Sonata Number no. 1. I just think that, you know, the, the dissonances are the emotional twists in this piece. Um, I think those are the things that kind of lead us through this longing story that's being told. Um, and it really pulls you, pulls you along for the ride. A sad peacefulness that sometimes we all need um, when we need to take a breath just before starting something new. So the cool thing about the show is that you hear the person talking about the music for about four or five minutes, and then they actually play the piece. And it's usually just a movement. So, you know, it's like three or four minutes of classical music at the end of this podcast. So it's daily and it's short enough to consume daily. So highly recommended. Open Ears Project. That sounds Very awesome. Cool. Yeah, it's great. Subscribe. Smash that subscribe <laughs> button on that classical say. music podcast. <laughs> Smash the button. What's your recommendation? I have two recommendations this week. I'm a little late to the first one, but I'm finally sucked into Succession. Oh, boy. Succession is a series on HBO, a scripted drama, tragic comedy, if you will. It's uh, based on, well, I mean, it's based on the Murdoch family. I, I'm sure like folks in the Murdoch family would deny that. The Murdochs of Fox News. The, and those Murdochs. The newspapers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, the, the man who rules the world of news. Uh, and it, but it's about, you know, an aging uh, media mogul who in the very beginning of the first season has a stroke. And so it sends his adult children who are each uniquely terrible in their own ways uh, into a spin over who's going to ultimately take control of this multinational media conglomerate. And um, I just, I cannot stop watching it. I'm almost caught up at this point because now it's in season two um, and it's great. And I wonder what it says about my psyche that I'm so into these characters. Um, yeah. All right. So that's the first one. If you haven't watched it yet, like, let me know and I'll give you my HBO login. Just message me on Twitter. On threads. And the, <laughs> yeah, message me on threads. But you have to be my close friend first. That's going to be problematic. Okay. You know where to find me, guys. Uh, but really my, okay, so that's like, that's sort of like a let me just catch up here mm -hmm. recommendation. My new recommendation is an episode of the Outside Magazine podcast. I'm pretty sure I've recommended Outside Magazine podcast before. This one is titled Getting Past Our Fear of Great White Sharks. Um, and it's about sharks. And it focuses a lot on the culture of sharks, um, particularly around Cape Cod. And um, Cape Cod, like I, I learned so much about the history of Cape Cod. I mean, I always knew it was like a fishing area. Cape Cod's a, like a, this little, the little hook at the bottom of New England that's part of Massachusetts, for those of you who don't know. I'm from the East Coast, so I'm like, oh yeah, Cape Cod, of course. But like, <laughs> I'm realizing like a lot of people might not know what that is. AKA the Cape. So the Cape, AKA the Cape, right. And they're like all these like, quaint, adorable, 
towns along the Cape. Anyway, uh, my brother lives up there in Provincetown, which is like the furthermost tip of Cape Cod. So, uh, so yeah, they've had a lot of shark sightings and, in fact, one fatal attack in recent years. And so that has sparked a lot of newfound fascination about sharks. Last year, two people were attacked by sharks on Cape Cod, and one died. The result has been a media frenzy that really you have to see to believe. But when you look past the headlines, the situation on the Cape is really a clash between these two stories we tell ourselves about sharks. Is this about us learning to live with fear? Or is it about whether it's possible for us to get over our fear? A lot of it has to do with, you know, the fact that the seal population has rebounded. For a while, seals were being culled to help the fishing, uh, the fishing community. And then um, back in the 70s, um, people stopped killing the seals and the sharks came back. And anyway, it's fascinating. Of course, it talks about Jaws, the impact that Jaws has had on our collective psyches in America around sharks. Jaws happens to be my favorite shark movie of all time. And um, I think you should listen to this episode. How many others are there? There are a lot. Uh, oh, Sharknado so 1, Sharknado shark 2, Sharknado 3, Sharknado yeah. 4. The Shallows. Um, what's that one about the couple that goes scuba diving on their honeymoon and they get left behind? Honestly, I don't know. Um, Obviously. Then, yeah, right. <laughs> right. I'm way behind in my There are a lot. I, th- I think I've seen like every shark movie. Usually I watch them on planes. Um, but like Jaws is the best. And what's interesting is like, so I mentioned my brother earlier who lives on the Cape. And he and I both probably have seen Jaws at least a dozen times in our lives because we were growing up like in the decade or so after Jaws had come out and it was like a very popular movie still. And it just didn't affect me the same way it affects him. Like he is so terrified of sharks. And whenever he comes out to visit, I'm like, Let, you want, do you want to try surfing? Like, do you want to go out surfing? He's like, no, like, hell no. And I'm like, no, come on. It's great. Like, you should totally go out on the water. And he's like, no. And like, I'm like, I think about it. I definitely think about it. But it's not, um, it hasn't been something that's like stopped me from doing what I want to do in the water yet. I don't know. Now I'm probably just going to go get eaten by a shark. But <laughs> I mean, really ch- hope you don't. No, I know. But your chances of like, your ch- I mean, the podcast also talks about this. Your chances of getting bit by a shark are exceptionally low. Yeah. And even then, your chances of dying are also pretty low. You might lose a foot. I mean, yeah. Let's not, you know, underplay that. It's a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but yeah, anyway, it's a great it's a great podcast episode. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Great. And that's Outside Magazine? Outside Magazine. Just go to Outside. Uh, they only have one podcast feed, I think, and all of our episodes and series within that are in the same feed. Sweet. We should try that. We should try, <laughs> we should try going. <laughs> I was like, we should go, what, shark watching? Uh, well, thank you all for listening to the show, mm-hmm. as always. Uh, if you enjoyed what you heard, please leave us a review and tell a friend. Uh, leaving a review and telling a friend helps other people who may enjoy the show find it. So we appreciate it if you do that. And in the meantime, until next week, you can find us on Twitter, of course. Uh, what are your Twitter handles, Ariel? At Pardesoteric, send gossip. <laughs> and Lauren? At Lauren Good with an E at the end, send sharks. And I am at Snack Fight. Send me cat photos. Uh, you can also talk to all of us at Gadget Lab, which uh, is the feed for the show and for all of us and for all of the great journalism that we do uh, in the consumer products world here at Wired. And until next week, thank you for listening.